Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. Our guest today is Oliver R.Z. Krakow. Um, Oliver Ozzy is an assistant professor of leadership and human resource development at LSU. And uh, Ozzy, you also specialize uh, specifically on, on, on global leadership. So delighted to have you on the show. Um, we have a mutual friend, right, Bob Aubrey, who, uh, who introduced us. And our topic today is building global leadership skills. So when we talk about concepts like leadership, I mean, it tends to be a very Anglo-centric context for the most part, right? Um, so in your research, you are specifically looking at leadership and, and human resource development in Southeast Asia. Uh, so what's different about leadership development in, in that part of the world? I lived and worked in Thailand for four years, beginning in 2009, and have kept in close touch with the region. In fact, just before this, I got off the phone with some colleagues in Thailand. And when I went to the U, uh, when I went to Thailand, I realized that you know obviously how everything operates is different in organizational contexts, and different perceptions of leadership is also quite different. So um, I had to sort of readjust my paradigm a little bit through a series of events, very painful events of adjustment and culture shock and um, frustration. But ultimately, after that time, four years, and subsequently since then. Uh, I've really enjoyed understanding what's going on in Southeast Asian organizations. And I have a sense of appreciation for how it's different than how we do things here in the U.S. And I hope that I have a more generous and patient understanding as well, because I think that's really important. If you really want to study and research about leading global organizations, you have to have a certain degree of openness and also patience for some of those differences and obviously non-judgmentalness because, you know, our first, obviously our first um, jump and instinct is to judge, you know, because we are judging species. That's how we survive and thrive. Um, and so, but you, there are sometimes, obviously, definitely in cross-cultural contexts where it's quite helpful to suspend that judgment for a moment to learn. So, so where, where do you see like the differences, right? I mean, if you look at kind of like how, how, how business gets done around there or how people think about leadership development, what, what strikes you as the most pertinent differences? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, as a researcher, I'm a faculty member at LSU. And so there's always my researcher hat that I'm wearing, which is where we want to look for, you know, psychometric properties. We want to look for scales and instruments that have been validated and that are proven to be reliable in different context. Um, but then I also have my practice hat, which is where I just think about, okay, well, what's working in this context right now? And usually those things are in alignment, but there are some times when they're not. And sometimes, you know, we go as scholars, we go to great lengths to try to explain things when actually if we just got down to what works in this moment, we would be a lot more uh, successful. So um, there have, were some really interesting studies called the GLOBE studies, which you may know of done in first in 2004 where they you know, had hundreds of researchers from all around the world look at middle management primarily um, in 62 countries around the world. And that was a real, and it was all about leadership. 
And that was a really great first step to understand sort of some of the major cultural differences. And some of them likely you and your audience would be very familiar with, things like power distance, um, collectivism versus individualism. So power distance is the extent to which um, people are willing to accept inequality in the organization or differences of power. Um, collectivism, individualism, you know, um, the U.S. typically ranks in the top or top or top three or top five in individualism means it's all about you. You can do what you want. This is why we have things like the Great Resignation. People have, you know, not so much loyalty to their organization. You know, it's kind of it, it's their life. It's their career. They can do what they want. Um, so. Uh, Whereas in a lot of other contexts, specifically in Southeast Asia, where I work, um, it's they're very collectivist societies. So it's all about group identity, group orientation, and you sort of uh, decision making processes typically are done by someone in a leadership role. But there's typically um, uh, and you would look to that, but there's typically more collective identity that this is our organization, these are our people. And that's one reason firing and hiring is so hard. In, for example, in Thai organizations, because once you're part of the family, you know, you have such this, you have this, this loyalty there and you don't want to let it go. So um, that's some of the more academic stuff. You know, one of the biggest tools and heuristics for leadership and leadership development in, in Southeast Asia and around the world that, that global leaders, I think, really need to know about is the difference between direct communication and indirect communication. And this is studied somewhat in the literature, but it's also a little bit anecdotal. Um, but I found that there's also differences even here in the United States. I'm, I'm originally from the North, but now I live in the great state of Louisiana, deep in the South. And in the North, generally, we're pretty comfortable with speaking directly about things, you know? You're doing great, you're not doing so great, you know? Whereas I found that I need to be a little bit more gentle here in the South where I need to approach things more indirectly sometimes. And it's almost comical in the Thai context, I have to say, as an American, it's comical for me, obviously, but wouldn't be for other people. So if I have a critique about someone's idea, it would be extremely inappropriate for me, unless I am a really high up leader, but even then you wanna be careful, for me to go to that person directly and say, eh, this idea really needs work, unfortunately, sorry. You know, even if I put all those little extra layers, like, unfortunately, you know, it's there's lots of good things, even if you even if you do this like affirmation sandwich, you know, so what but there's a little workaround you can do culturally that you sort of learn over time. For example, instead of going directly to that person and telling them this idea really needs work, what you can do is you can go to one of their peers and you can, you know, talk to them and say, hey, can you please let them know that this idea really needs work? And these are the three things I want you to do. And then that way, that person whose idea you are critiquing saves face. And because if someone loses face, it's a face um, society, um, face capital is sometimes used. If that person loses face, then the whole deal goes sour. And really, it can rupture the relationship between those two people forever. Um, and in some cases, it's completely unable to ever be fixed. Uh, so um, the other interesting workaround I want to say about this. So if, if I want my own idea uh, critiqued, sometimes, you know, you might be in a leadership position in an organization that values indirect communication and you, you want feedback. All right, give me some feedback. What do you think? What do you think? 
No one's going to give you feedback, especially if you're a white American man from the United States who is ostensibly in this power position. Um, people do not want to give you direct feedback or honest feedback um, directly because it would be awkward and it would put it would make it could make you lose face. And so a Thai person might say, look, I don't want to make you lose face. They wouldn't say that, but they would be thinking that. So don't put me in that position. So a little trick I've used many times is you can ask someone even in the room with you. And so say I, so say I want to get, you know, person X, their opinion. I would even ask someone else, person Y, person Y, what do you think person X might think about this? And or I could ask person X, person X, what do you think person Y might think about this? And I would get a more honest answer with someone telling me what someone else might think because they're sort of channeling their own idea. So anyways, that's a long way of saying there are some little tricks that you can learn in the global leadership world to uh, maneuver those complex social situations more smoothly. <laughs> no, I think that's super fascinating because, right, I mean, if you think about it's like a lot of the ideas right, that, that we have in, in the West, right? And, and so if you like to train managers and you, you send them abroad, right, uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, that that can create some some really interesting dynamics. Right? Um, but it, it probably also, I'm just wondering kind of like how it plays out the other way around. Um, I mean, all these societies, right, they're, they're rapidly developing, uh, developing. I have several pieces of research about this topic, specifically um, in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia, because Vietnam is an excellent case of this. You know, it's a country that historically was known for manu uh, manufacturing cheap labor and, and still has some, somewhat has that reputation. Um, Vietnam is also one of the 10 member countries in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which functions kind of like the EU, although many important cultural differences. Um, and Vietnam really wanted to get out of this trap of being just a home of um you know, come to us for your cheap labor needs. And so they saw human resource development, training development largely as the, the mechanism for getting out of that trap. And, and as you know, you know, human resource development, if you have trained workers, that's a, an, an extremely attractive thing for foreign direct investment. And even within the region, that has dramatically increased over the last five years that um, and 10 years that even intra-regionally of those 10 member countries of ASEAN, you have people who, you, you have countries that are investing or, or wanting to invest more because they see that, well, they have more, more workers now. They have more people who can do these things more, you know, instead of just cheap labor, they have a little bit more uh, sophisticated things that, that they can do. And um, so we've seen that happen. And that was largely driven by Vietnam itself, their leadership, but also in conjunction with ASEAN, that, that regional organization. So this is what I, I've been thinking about, regional human resource development. So region, so human resource development that happens, you know, we talk about workforce development at the country level or, or national human resource development, obviously organizational, individual. But um, I've been looking about how, what, you know, what happens when countries are tied together and say, hey, let's develop our people because it's going to be better, not just for us as individual countries, but us as a region. So in the Vietnamese context, very fascinating. Um, in So ASEAN, this regional organization, has a rotating chair. And uh, every 10 years, they, you know, each country would be a chair because there are 10 member countries and each is chair for one year. So Vietnam was chair in 2010 and, and 2020. 
And in both those years, ASEAN introduced its most robust human resource development policy. In fact, in 2020, it's called the, De the uh, Declaration for Human Resources Development for the Changing World of Work. And so Vietnam has been driving in ASEAN this move away from just being, hey, you know, throw your cheap dollars at us and we'll throw you some T-shirts back. And really says we want to invest in our people. As a result, within ASEAN, you know, they used to think of the big five, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines and Thailand. And then the others were sort of lesser so, except for Brunei. Um, Brunei was still obviously a very high income country. Um, but then you had C the CLMV countries, they even called them. So Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar and Vietnam. Well, in recent years, they're not even including Vietnam in that grouping anymore because it has moved so far away from what it used to be by primarily developing it's human resources. Yeah. I think our attention tends to be more in the West, right? Primarily the US, right? And, and maybe right, people also read about what Japan does or China does, but that, that's that's probably um, secondary, at least from, from where we sit. But I'm wondering if there's also some innovation on the edges, right? Where people might in, 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 in countries like maybe Laos or Cambodia, right? People just find very different solutions to, to right problems that we have in the in the West, do you see any any innovation out there that that's like could be possibly re-imported into the West? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I think maybe not in the, some some sectors like tech. I think, um, but certainly in a lot of other businesses and things, I do see some innovation and also some management styles and things. Um, you know, whenever I go to Thailand or anywhere in Southeast Asia, I'm always amazed at all the unique, interesting shops. And there are certainly some cities that have that type of, you know, you know, unique shops and, and ideas. And, um, you know, here in the South, unfortunately, one big, very noticeable thing when you when you come to, for example, Baton Rouge is most of the shops are big chains. You know, so in our student union, we have Chick-fil-A, we have um, Panda Express, we have McDonald's and, you know, whereas other places don't. And I would say one thing you notice when you go to travel throughout Southeast Asia, there's so many interesting shops of all different kinds um, that I'm like, well, why don't we have this? You know, why doesn't someone, a college graduate, start a shop here, you know? And then you realize to do so in the, in the U.S., there are so many barriers to small business development and entrepreneurship and um, so many regulations, for example. So, and also the cost of labor is much higher here than it is in Thailand or Southeast Asia generally. So, um, but it's a good question. I think uh, a thoughtful that, you know, that's one reason I think that this conversation can tie into your audience is because, and I would encourage everyone to um, learn more about the world. That's really what global leadership is all about. So some of the global leadership competency models uh, you know, almost all of them have some element of openness and learning. Um, some of the better ones, like Black and Morrison, use the word inquisitiveness. My word of choice would be curiosity. And I think some of the some of the underlying motivation in your question is is the need for us as scholars and thoughtful practitioners, business leaders, to be open and curious about the world around us, not just the world immediately in front of us, not just what are my um, immediate uh, competitors are doing, especially in, this, in the globalizing world, you just certainly can't do that unless you have an extremely localized product. Um, 
So being curious and, and there is um, curiosity for the sake of information seeking, specific information seeking, but there's also curi uh, curiosity and inquisitiveness generally about life. And um, I think that it's that latter type that drove me to live and work in Thailand and stay there. And it's that latter type of curiosity for its own sake. You know, pick up a newspaper in a foreign country if they have an English language. Pick up a novel that was recently published in the airport from that cultural context. Um, you know, read what you can and learn and just be open to those types of things. And that would let you see when you are traveling or even not just on online, it would give you the tools to be open to learning and seeing what other cultures and other contexts are doing. What other things do you see? I mean, right? If you like, you know, would build like a, 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 a successful global leader, what would you put into, into his bag? So I mentioned uh, inquisitiveness. Another would be perspective. So that's basically how comfortable are you with uncertainty? So you, in, in order to be a global leader, you need to be very comfortable with uncertainty because there is so much of it out there, especially when you leave your home. And I mean that in, you know, big, um, big home or home country, home context, wherever you feel safe. Um, you also need a certain element of character. And this can be anything from, you know, are you easy to get along with generally? Are you kind? Are you kind of accepting of other people? Or are you always like frustrated by other people? Um, and so, you know, it's not just about have you eaten breakfast that morning, um, but uh, have you had your morning coffee? But it's also about, you know, just generally, are you an uh, optimistic, open person, kind person? So you have inquisitiveness, character, and perspective. And the last would just be business savvy, which sort of goes cross-culturally, not just about your own um, industry in your own context, but you have business savvy about your context generally, um, your industry generally. And are you willing to learn more about how your industry functions in different cultures? Um, so those four, I think that's a simplistic way of understanding, or at least an easy to understand way of thinking about global leadership. When you think about developing as a global leader, the best way, as you can imagine, which research shows is assignments in other contexts. So going, moving and living there for a long period of time, you know, three months, a month, a year, that's the best way to develop as a global leader, bar none. Reading, unfortunately reading books, that is gonna help and that is one of the key activities, but that is, there is no replacement for actually being there experiencing that. So I'm actually wondering, with the result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the inability to travel and live internationally, that was being massively stunted. How is that going to affect globally our global leadership competency as a world of people? Because I think it, it is going to be stunted, even though there have been tons more cross-cultural interactions digitally. You know, I, as I said, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the phone or on Zoom with people in Southeast Asia pretty much every week. So in that sense, that, that has increased, but I wonder, there is no replacement, and there is some research popping up about this, which I'm excited to dive into more, but basically, is that really a replacement for being there and experiencing those things? I think almost definitely not, but we will see. <laughs> it seems like companies in general are moving uh, away from so the expect assignments, right? Because right, it's very expensive. 
right? When people come back, oftentimes, right, they don't really have a, a, a role to fit in. Uh, I mean, some companies are very savvy about this, but, but you know, I've, I've seen some challenges there. And the other problem is that obviously, like, you know, when you just export somebody as a country manager to, you know, Vietnam, right, then, right, you kind of like, you know, perpetuate kind of like this, this model of like, you know, the, the, the privileged white person going there, telling people what to do, right? So it's not, the, the opportunities for learning are somewhat limited in that context, right? I mean, it strike me as that probably the most valuable, um, or the most beneficial approach would be for people to do this earlier in their career, right? And and, and get get into like more on the on the ground floor. Would you, would you agree? I think that's very well said. Yeah, and I, I would encourage everyone to take a gap year in between high school and college, or a gap year from college to the workforce if they can, to do to do some travel and extended life abroad if they can, or or have their first job out of college to be. Um, working for an international company or working for a company in another cultural context. I think you're right. When there are some, there is a lot of research about um, international assignments and struggles, and you know, family tops the list typically. Um, you know, so if you do have family, that is it's very disruptive and very difficult um, for family members to adjust to a new. So I do, I really agree with that. And frankly, I do also agree that we should be moving away from international assignments because. They are just so fraught with problems, and you know, not to mention they're more expensive. But they are—they provide so many issues. But as long as companies are working together, as long as there are multinational corporations, as long as globalization continues to weave its web, then you will have the need for people to be have these global leadership competencies, to be open, to be effective in communicating, to be um, open to different experiences. And so it's tricky. It's sort of as a catch-22. And um, my hope exactly is that everyone, even if you are, um, if you can't move, so for example, and so I've heard, I have friends, for example, who take care of family members or like an elderly family member, or they, um, their spouse has a job and they can't relocate. There are many ways, I think, at home, we say, that you can develop global leadership competencies. So for example, attending um, religious uh, in, um, institutions of that typically are associated with other cultures is one way. And you know, not obviously not, I'm not advocating that people convert to different religions, but that can be, you know, be curious, you know, who are the 30 million gods in Hinduism, you know, and I wouldn't recommend memorizing all of them, but you know, being open and learning, in the Thai context, it's a majority Buddhist country. So I, I've always, and I'm a little bit biased because I studied religion undergrad, but I think religion is a fantastic way to develop global leadership competencies because how you think about what's wrong in the world and how to fix it and what's the meaning of life, those deep religious questions are really culturally embedded. Um, even the same religion, like take Christianity, but you put it anywhere else around the world, it manifests very differently. And so I think you can get a great lens into that. And so I, I would say there are many ways. That's only one. Um, there are many uh, cultural celebrations that happen. Um, Diwali, for example, is celebrated here, even in Baton Rouge. And you can go and celebrate in and learn about um, Indian culture, for example. So I would say, and there are also a lot of international people. We are so unfortunate in the US to live in such a culturally rich country with people from all over the world 
And so we can, if we are curious enough, and that's the bottom line, if we are curious enough, we can have really rich cross-cultural experiences that will develop our global leadership competencies. If we go out and seek them out and meet people, read novels from like around the world, talk to people, you don't have to travel even, you know, and if you, you know, see someone and you hear that maybe they have an accent of some kind, talk to them, start up a conversation. That's exactly the type of thing you would be doing if you were living in a different country. So why not do it here? Yeah, no, I can, I can only agree. I mean, having, having myself, you know, made, made, uh, made, made that, made that change, right. And, and, and lived, uh, and, and now working for more than half my, my life in, in the States. Um, I, I find it incredibly valuable, although my data about, you know, what I know about Germany is now becoming right, very, very outdated. So, so over time you, you assimilate, uh, quite naturally, right. But, um, so, so Ozzy, I mean, how did you get interested in this whole topic of, of global leadership in the first place? After living and working in Thailand, and I did my master's degree in human development and psychology at Harvard, I, my world was really opened up at that point. And I love scholarship. I love reading and learning. And that was a really rich piece of my experience, learning. And I read uh, about 50 books a year while I was living in Thailand. And a lot of people do that when they live in Thailand because they're away from family and things like that. Um, while I was there, you know, I also heard this great tale of a Thai fisherman who every day goes out, fishes, comes home, has lunch with his wife, plays with his kids, and then in the evening plays guitar with his friends and has a great time. And then one day an American comes along and, and sees this Thai fisherman and says, hey, if you just fished a couple hours longer into the afternoon, you could um, catch some more fish. And the Thai fisherman responds, well, then what? And the American says, well, if you had more fish, you could sell them at the market and have some extra money. To which the Thai fisherman responds, well, then what? Well, the, the, the American says, then if you had some more money, eventually after doing that for a while, you could hire a couple fishermen to help you and be on your team and you could catch even more money. Then what? Well, then you could buy a boat. And if you bought a boat, then you could really get a big haul of fishing. Then what? Well, then if you had a boat, you could have this whole business infrastructure and have a lot of people working for you. It could be really great. Then what? And then the American finally says, because he's getting frustrated with this Thai fisherman always saying, then what? Well, then at the end, you could you know, go home early from work, spend some time with your wife, play with your kids, and then in the evening, play guitar with your friends and have a great time. And I love that story because um, so many, you know, our high performance work paradigm in the United States is so focused on maximizing everything and working as hard as you can to just do as much as you can. Um, and as a result, you know, we have massively low engagement levels, burnout, all these things which are happening at the same time as COVID, but um, they've been happening for a while. And if you, you know, I was so taken by that idea that you could just, there are ways you can live your life. And for example, my two best friends are a doctor and a lawyer. They both make about twice as much money as I do, but they both also literally work twice as many hours as I work. And if you asked me, do I want to work twice as many hours and make twice as much money? I would say, no way. You know, I'm very happy with my life. And as a, so I really got into this field and into my work as a scholar because it's what I love to do. 
So every day I get to read books, read articles, um, engage with the intellectual world, read articles about research, about what's going on around the world. And I, then I get to write studies, write books and articles and conduct studies about things that interest me. And I hope in doing so, make a useful contribution to scholarship and research. So that that's how I got into this world. And, um, <laughs> but, and we'll see where the journey takes me. I find that very interesting because I mean, one of the topics I, I'm interested in is, is this notion of work design, right? How do you create such intrinsically motivating work? And um, one thing I find is that, right? I mean, there's plenty of research out there, right? We know that, you know, beyond like a certain threshold, I think it's like $8,000 or so, that can't be, that can't be true in, in, in the New York area. Um, but beyond like a basic right, uh, a threshold, giving people more money doesn't increase their happiness. Um, and I think you also consistently find that that folks in, in academia or research tend to have a very high um, degree of, of satisfaction with their work. So if you, I mean, if you, you mentioned this this high performance work system in the U.S., right? I mean, was was burnout and degreed resignation. What would be a culturally appropriate remedy for that? That I think, right? I mean, if we look more closely at home, maybe with your vantage point of, you know, looking this to the global lens, right? What, what should what should leaders be, be thinking about back home to make work more, more motivating and rewarding for people? Yes, I have some ideas on this. Um, first, I think leaders need to give people as much flexibility as possible. It's kind of an obvious one that we learned from COVID. You know, we are on the cusp of just a mental health breakdown as a country. Um, everyone, you know, it's not just in higher education, but, you know, it seems like everyone from people who are working nine to five or people who are working for hourly all the way up to Will Smith are on the cusp of mental breakdown. So we need more space to take care of ourselves, go to the doctor. I, I've talked to people all the time who haven't gone to the doctor for a while, two years, three years. They haven't gotten their annual physical. And so people, you know, their eyes are not working as well as they should be. Their ears are not working as well as they should be. They have other things going on that they haven't been able to address because they don't have that flexibility. So number one, you got to take care of their mental and physical health by, I think, by giving them flexibility because people will do it if they have flexibility and they are encouraged to do so. If they are constantly under pressure of the next project, the, the next big due date that I have to do, the next big thing going on, then I think they're always going to put that stuff off. Um, so those that's a couple of things. How much do you think that is driven by the social contract or lack thereof? Right? In other words, right? Because people, right? In other societies, I mean, I remember in, in some countries, it's very difficult to lay off workers, right? I mean, if you, Europe, right? Some places, um, uh, virtually impossible, right? Um, which obviously creates some other problems from a workforce mobility perspective. Um, but uh, I, I, what I find is in the US, the, the complete absence or nearly complete absence of a social contract uh, kind of makes it makes work like a very existential thing, right? Um, any, any views on that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I am a millennial, and so we are famous for feeling zero commitment to our organizations and some some of us even to our country or to our cities or anything we have very loyal very little loyalty to any organizations 
And that's also one reason, for example, religious, you know, saying that you are a specific religion versus the nuns, N-O-N-E, you know, no real affiliation, that's on the rise in the U.S. as well. So I, I think you're right. There is sort of this what's going on is a lot of people just don't feel connected or committed to organizations, institutions of any kind, you name it. Doesn't, you know, New York Times and, you know, Fox News, no one really, there are people who are still more loyal, but most people just, we don't care. You know what I mean? What can you do for me in this moment in a very short term time span? What can you, what can you do for me? But otherwise, I, you know, I'll leave you high and dry tomorrow because I have no commitment to you, you know? And unfortunately that's even happening in some family context as well. You know what I mean? I, so, um, I, I think ultimately it comes down to care. Someone has to start, and I think this is where leaders can can play a role. Someone has to start saying, we care about your mental and physical health. We care about your well-being. If you leave us, that's up to you, but we are going to show you how much we care about you because we value you. We value you, not just you because of your work, but we value you holistically. And this is where Bob Aubrey and I really meet eye to eye is that we really see that that human resource paradigm where people are something that you can buy sell and trade by the way don't blame the people for not being committed because the whole paradigm is you are our resource you are our capital and capital by definition can be traded sold given away um and so uh i think we need a paradigm that says we are here to develop people and because we recognize that we're all in this together. We got one planet, we got one group of people. So we're going to do our best and everyone's lives are inextricably connected. So we're going to do our best to um, develop in everyone. And then obviously the old axiom goes, you know, if, if it, 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 would, it would be worse if we invested in our people and they left or it'd be worse if they stayed than if they left. They get that right. So um, you know, what happens if you inv don't invest in your people and they stay, right? That's what would be worse than investing in your people and they leave. So for me, I do get fired up about this because I think it's incumbent on organizational leaders and all of us to, to really take care of people. And I do this as a faculty member with my students. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your views, Ozzy. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Thomas. Likewise. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.